This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm the old DB. Let's hit the horns and go. Way ahead of the horns that time. You got a long go, but not a go Habs go, because that hurts the feelings of Toronto Maple Leafs fans. Coming up on the show today, Microsoft has unveiled a whole series of Surface devices. Sean Priest will tell you all about them. And I'm going to openly criticize the marketing people at Microsoft for using the word Surface too much. (laughs) With Halloween around the corner, will your home be inclusive and accessible? Treat Accessibly provides tools to help you with that. Karen McGee will have that story. And Jenny Bovard wants to share her working experience as part of our ongoing conversation on National Disability Employment Awareness. So we'll also be talking about the best pies. Michelle McQuig will be here. Amy Amy Manti will be here with a film review as well. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day. Not a lot of detail on this one, but I want to make sure it's on your radar because I'll be sharing as much sound as I can on this one over the course of the next couple of weeks and We'll walk through the frustration of it all together. The public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act begins today. As you are well aware, the Emergencies Act was invoked in February in response to protests in Ottawa and several border blockades. The inquiry is mandatory after the use of the act, and the inquiry will last for several weeks before a final report is submitted next year. While we're talking about federal politics... Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has announced his shadow cabinet. Stephanie Taylor has the details. Polyev has made room for two of his former leadership rivals onto his front bench. Scott Aitchison will steer the party's housing response, while Les and Lewis will be its face for infrastructure. Some had been watching to see what Polyev would do with Lewis, a social conservative opposed to abortion who campaigned hard against the World Economic Forum. One notable name missing from Polyev's critic picks is Michelle Rempel-Garner. The longtime Alberta MP had backed Patrick Brown in the race against Polyev before Brown found himself disqualified. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And let's go overseas, where Defence Minister Anita Anand has met with allies to discuss reinforcing a NATO battle group in Latvia with thousands more soldiers. Minister Anand says all NATO countries have a role to play in bolstering the force. We are making sure that all allies are on board with committing additional resources and personnel as we surge to brigade level. But make no mistake, we have been the leader of the framework nation since 2015 in Latvia, and Canada will continue to be there in support of the defense and deterrence on NATO's eastern flank. Canada currently has about 700 troops in Latvia. And NATO countries are planning to boost Ukraine's missile defense forces after recent Russian airstrikes. Ines de la has more. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. We will stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. We will step up our support and in particular we will provide more uh, air defense uh, systems uh, to uh, Ukraine. Stoltenberg's comments were echoed by U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, saying they are committed to the long haul. Those comments made as NATO's defense ministers meet in Brussels to discuss more aid to Ukraine. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, 
at the foreign desk. Now let's come back across the Atlantic. That was fast. And into the prairies, where Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson says she'd like some flexibility from the federal government on carbon pricing. A federal court judge ruled last year that Ottawa has the right to impose a price on carbon in Manitoba when the province refused to impose one of its own that met federal standards. Stephenson decided not to appeal the ruling, but still wants to negotiate with the feds. We thought by not, um, you know, taking them and appealing that decision that it would offer some goodwill and that we could actually sit down and, and have a discussion. And really, um, that didn't take place. They just imposed the, the backstop. The federal government in response says it has given Manitoba a chance to present an alternative and has not received one. And now we've gone across the Atlantic, into the prairies. Let's finish in the North Pacific. Alaska has cancelled crab fishing season. Daria Albinger has that story. Alaskan king crab and snow crab, popular on seafood platters, in sushi and in chowders, are about to get very hard to find. And if you do find them, they're probably going to be very expensive. Alaska officials canceled this year's seasons over worries that the populations are on the verge of collapsing. They say the focus must now be on conservation. The decision is a blow to fishermen from Alaska, Washington and Oregon, whose earnings have been falling steadily in recent years since a high of $280 million million dollars in 2016. Daria Albinger, ABC News. I always find the way those stories get presented as interesting because yes, obviously it's a blow to the people who've built their livelihoods upon crab fishing. You know what would be a blow to those industries as well? The total collapse and extinction of the species. The, the point is you reached your high several years ago, one because the deadliest catch was an awesome TV show and B because you were probably overfishing. Right? Like, we have to understand here, this isn't a binary, this is a continuum. The population of crab didn't start decreasing yesterday. It started decreasing for years because of overfishing. So yes, you're going to have your season canceled this year, and that is terrible. And there should be programs in place to help people who've built their livelihoods on those industries. But to simply say, oh, it's a blow to fishermen. Yeah, it's going to be a blow to fishermen. Because you need, to, you need the species to live. So your choice is this, you miss out on a couple of years or if you have restricted fishing seasons and we eat less snow crab sushi or we just never eat it ever again, right? You, like you, you probably think, oh, Dave, you're being dramatic. You're being, no, I'm not being dramatic. It's a numbers game. You need more crabs to do more procreation to get more crabs. It's not super scientific arithmetic. You don't need a PhD in mathematics to understand that. Anyway, that's not a criticism of Daria Albinger. I just feel like, yeah, it's a blow to fishermen. Of course. Of course. Anyway, maybe uh, you can eat more lobster as an alternative. Shrimp. Shrimp is good. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is not, oh, uh, see, too busy ranting, not paying attention to the branding. No more $2 fines, though. We ended that on October 1st. I don't know what the punishment is now. Maybe I'll just go home. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Yesterday, we asked you, how important is Canadian content to you when it comes to entertainment? 43% of you said very, 43% of you said somewhat, and 14% of you said not at all. We did have a, a comment from Joanne on Facebook who wanted to shout out a couple of her favorite Canadian shows, Shit's Creek and Working Moms. So these are some of the modern contemporary Canadian shows that have been incredible and growing over the last couple of years and 
got a lot of international recognition. And I was remiss yesterday that I forgot to mention the Trailer Park Boys. I was shouted at in a group chat when someone was listening to the podcast. I said, how can you forget Trailer Park Boys? You watch that show all the time. There's a great example. And, uh, of course, the what I guess you would call like the successor to Trailer Park Boys I, I know people don't like it when I make that comparison, but Letterkenny, of course, and Shorzy, that has grown out of the Letterkenny universe. There's a lot of great Canadian content being made, including this show, every single day. <laughs> and we'll talk to Greg David tomorrow a little bit about the impact that local film industries and TV industries have in terms of building a more robust industry and the knock-on and carry-on effects that that can have. So... Lots to talk about with Greg later on the show in relation to that topic. Let's get to today, today's daily poll. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. It's World Sight Day. So how often do you get your eyes checked? Frequently? Occasionally? Rarely? I thought about putting never there, but I think it would be pretty stunning if somebody never got their eyes checked. But I'll give you a mea culpa here as a legally blind person with bad eyesight. I have not had my eyes checked since the summer of 2010. I am well overdue for a checkup. But what are they going to tell me? Hey, guess what, Dave? You're still legally blind. I really could use a new pair of glasses, though. When I got these eyeglasses, I was 210 pounds, and now I'm a little bit over 300. I think uh, these glasses are for the face of a muscular, attractive person, not a big fatso. All right, so I'm going to move on. Let's bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, you and I were talking about this off the air a little bit yesterday. Uh, how often are you going in to get those eyes checked, getting your peepers checked yeah, up on? Yeah, you know, well, uh, Dave, when you first mentioned it's like, yeah, you hadn't done it in, uh, like, years, but over a decade, I was like, uh, maybe you should go get your eyes checked. I mean, yeah. if nothing else, you know, as you mentioned, upgrade your glasses, maybe, like, see if there's some other... Thing not in uh not associated with your your vision loss happening i mean for myself i i go fairly regularly i have for my uh my eye condition i typically go every year every other year for the annual checkup just to see what my vision feels like what my vision is like and uh because of that and actually during covid during one of my regular checkups they kind of identified okay i had cataracts forming so then I could go through this whole process and get cataract surgery done because, you know, if I didn't, it was just going to deteriorate. My vision was going to get worse. And so there's value to getting your eyes checked and, and going in for those regular checkups because cataracts can happen to anyone. And it's it can be independent of whatever base vision loss you have. So getting things like that checked out and making sure there's no other issues forming is really important. So please, Dave, uh, on behalf of me and everybody else, all the audience and all the team here, <laughs> please go get your eye checked more than once in a decade. Yeah, let's uh, let's make that a goal. Let's make that a goal either by the end of 2022 or early 2023 to be a little bit more conscious of some of these what I'll call peripheral health checkups. You know, I didn't go to the dentist between January of 2010 and the summer of 2016. So uh, my natural state, my natural setting is lazy. Okay. So sometimes yeah. I need to be a little bit proactive. Although it was so funny. Once I ended up going to the dentist in 2016 with, like, fear and shame in my heart, they were like, mm -hmm. don't be ashamed. We're just glad that you came. Like, we're actually just yeah. happy that you showed up. We're not going to guilt yeah. you for not coming here for six years. We will guilt you for not flossing enough, though. Alex, thank you for this. <laughs> Let's bring in Eliza Rocco. Eliza, where do you stand on the frequency of eye checks? Before. 
before the pandemic, I was going quite frequently, and I'm very proud of myself for that. I'm not, I'm kind of like you, and I uh, forget to do these things, and uh, the years stack up. Like I, I haven't been to the dentist in uh, a few years now, and I definitely <laughs> should go. <laughs> but um, yeah, pre-pandemic, I went the winter before the pandemic, so I'm due for another eye test and i also really like you really want to get a new pair of glasses mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. new glasses comes after you take the medicine which is the eye yes exam. you know one of the things that i want to do and maybe why i want to get them checked out for those new glasses is because i'm thinking about visiting my folks in arizona this winter and there are all kinds of great deals on glasses down there but you got to have the right numbers you got to right. make sure you give them the right prescription before you get the dope pair of glasses for super cheap Exactly. you got to prepare yourself. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you something that I wish people had told me earlier on working in this office. There are two dentists on the sixth floor up here. Particular shout out to Dr. Barry Lever is awesome. So uh, if you ever want to go no to the did. dentist, uh, it's right <laughs> upstairs and they're super welcoming and uh, very lovely because it also took me a couple years after I moved to Toronto to get a dentist because, you know, the plague hit. Yeah. Uh, six weeks after I moved here. Um, but when I broke my teeth earlier this year, I realized, oh boy, you better you better get over to that dentist uh, sometime uh, sometime quick. So uh, the guy upstairs, awesome. Highly recommend. And apparently the other person upstairs is really good too. So uh, highly recommend if you want to get back Writing into the dentist mix. Down. There we go. <laughs> We're sharing and caring here. And I'm sure Dr. Lever is happy to get a shout out here on the air today, but he will not give me a discount for that. No, yeah. no contra deals here on <laughs> Now with Dave Brown. <laughs> Eliza, thank you for this. You. If you want to vote in the meantime on our poll at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook you can send us an email feedback at ami.ca or give us a phone call 1-866-509-4545 and i'm sure there's one or two of you out there who says dave you're supposed to be a leader and a role model get your eyes checked save it i'm no role model let's bring in alex Smythe for the national weather update Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John, Newfoundland, it's sunny and a high of 16. Over in Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 20. In Montreal, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds this morning, turning cloudy and then rain starting later. Now, there's actually a rainfall warning in effect as up to 50 millimeters is expected and 21 is the high. Over to Ottawa, Ontario, showers today and a special weather statement is in effect in there as well as 50 millimeters. It's also expected in the area and there's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. So not a very good day to be out and about in Ottawa and the high is 16. Over into Toronto, Ontario, showers this morning, then cloudy and possible rain later with 14 being the high. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers and a high of eight. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's cloudy with rain or flurries expected and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with a high of only five. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 13. To Calgary, Alberta, it's a beautiful day. It's sunny with 19 as the high. Edmonton, Alberta, same thing, sunshine, but even warmer at 23 degrees as a high. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, 
It's a mix of sun and clouds with the risk of freezing rain this morning and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with a high of eight. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny and a high of 19. And then finally in Victoria, BC, it's sunny as well with a high of 21. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, some companies in Ontario will need to be more transparent in how they digitally track employees. Michelle McQuig and I will take a deeper dive into that news story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's welcome back into the show Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Hello, Dave. So, Michelle, welcome yes, back. Thank you very much. Good to be back. It's sort of today. Today's the first day I feel kind of human again. So, very happy to be on the mend. Oh, well, gotta start somewhere, I guess. Yeah, it takes about a week. It takes about a week, give or take, and a Real. lot of tea. Wow. I've not had a coffee. In eight nine days now, so we're uh, we're we're cranking on a street. All right, here. I've just gone from some like you know generally sympathetic to feeling deep empathy here. Well, that's that, that's a lot. Tea. <laughs> we just drink tea now. That that's Ooh. who we are. We're the tea person. It's just the way it's the way life goes. And thankfully, nobody is tracking my liquid consumption generally speaking. But <laughs> Michelle, employees and employers and but, but do you, but do you really know that? That is the question. This, so here we go. This is what leads us into the story where we shared a very short clip yesterday on the show talking about a. Show in policy in Ontario about the disclosure of how employers can track employees digitally and, and how they can surveil them. So, Michelle, give me just like the broad strokes of the story, set the table, and then we can dive into this a little bit. Yeah, you got it. So basically, uh, some months ago, Ontario indicated it was going to introduce some legislation that was going to force employers with 25 staff or more to have an electronic monitoring policy. And uh, from the looks of it, it looks like this might actually be the first legislation of its type in the country. The long and the short of the story is that this policy was announced some months ago. The rule itself came into effect on Tuesday. So now all those companies with 25 employees plus have to at least have a policy in place. And they now have 30 days in which to share that policy with their employees. So just give me that that number breakdown one more time. It has to be a company of over 25 yeah. people. So if you're under 25, yeah, you're exempt. Pretty much, yes. And with 25 or over, all you have to do in this policy is really lay out how you are tracking them, which, which as I said, is not something that's been done elsewhere. Uh, but there's no additional measures other than just the need to describe exactly how you're monitoring your, your staff. Michelle, is there any sense of how common it is or what companies are using to track their employees? Yeah, there. Well, it's hard to, to yeah, actually like, quantify. Yeah, it's really hard to wrap your head around. It's an interesting story because of that. Totally, it, it, it's a part of the whole part of the novelty of this law in Ontario it, because it's so new. No, companies previously have not had to disclose. So, no, we don't really have a good sense of of exactly how many people are enlisting. You know, tech tech monitoring software, employee monitoring protocols. But it depends on the industry. A lot of it does, because in some, we know that there's a lot of monitoring efforts underway. Let's say in fast food restaurants where you have software tracking how long it takes a cashier to cash something out. All the delivery firms, of course, have, have GPS monitoring their drivers mm, so people mm. can have a, a good sense of how those routes are going. 
So the, the idea of, of staff surveillance is probably a lot less novel in some of those industries than it might be in some of the other companies or sectors rather, where it's going to be more of under discussion now as these policies get rolled out. I'm thinking of places like the financial sector, you know, insurance, perhaps uh, fields like mine, um, those that are a little further removed from the service industry. To me, there's always this intangibility in, t- in terms of trying to understand productivity. And I'm pretty sure if you're a company that doesn't have sort of concrete production goals that you can't point to something every day that says, I accomplished X and here's the actual evidence because there's an output. I do understand why companies are trying to figure out, okay, what is what is going on here? But it's, it seems so strange for them to be tracking your performance in a particular way. And listen, I, just, I, I believe in a, a, a separation of church and state in terms of my devices, Michelle. I don't use my personal equipment for work. I have a work phone and a work computer and work happens there. And I assume everything that happens on there is tracked. And then I have my personal computer and my personal phone. And there's really no way that the company can track me on those. Well, so that that's a, a smart approach that I'm sure a lot of people would, would give you a lot of credit for adopting. Uh, for some, of course, they don't necessarily have the means to have separate devices. So that gets a bit tricky. And as is the case with so many things now, COVID really muddied the waters for people who did perhaps maintain that strict separation before, couldn't, of course, during pandemic times when they might have been working from home. And this one aspect that is documented is that there was a rise in demand for monitoring software during the pandemic. People, I guess, were trying to get their heads around how the shift to work from home was going to go, trying to maintain employee productivity in those environments. Uh, so it, it is, it's definitely a tricky one. Uh, lines are blurred all over the place. And now, of course, employers are going to have to spell out exactly what they're doing. But this mm-hmm. leads to another complex issue in that what the bill does not do, it, it lays out what the employers are required to do, but it doesn't necessarily boost any rights on the employee end or any protections on the employee end. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't build it any. <laughs> it just tells you what you have to disclose. It doesn't say there's yeah. any punishment for what you do disclose. But this is the part that's wild is that that is being seen as an actual step forward, even a a fairly bare bones bill like this one or those aspects of the bill um, are, are being seen as progress because we haven't even had the starting ground for this conversation of exactly, okay, what is your employer doing? Are these things above board? Because some of these pieces of monitoring software are pretty intense. Some of them, you know, they can record keystrokes, they can record eye movements, some of them take screenshots every 10 minutes and send them back to someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so there's there is a lot of when we talk about employee surveillance, the, the definition is broad in the legislation because, for this very reason, because there are so many different ways and means that of someone can be surveilled. Yeah. Um, so it it's quite broad and not delving too deeply into the employee end of things. But now that these conversations can start, uh, a number of privacy experts are hoping that this might kick off those conversations on the employee end and eventually hopefully lead to some better protections. I'll, I'll tell you, law firms definitely have one approach on this, which is billable hours, right? You get paid for what you bill. Yep. So you yep. have to really be, you're, you're self-tracking at that point because it's for, it's for client purposes, it's for client transparency. I worked for one company where they felt that maybe productivity wasn't as high as they wanted. So they started having us actually send weekly tracking sheets, like weekly, here's what you did over the course of your shift. And they stopped us doing that three weeks later because they realized, oh, 
oh, we have to start paying people overtime if we actually. I was going to say because they're record. realizing that people are spending their time filling out these sheets rather than doing their actual work. <laughs> a little bit of that too. A little yeah. bit of that too. Uh, Michelle, I was so sad that I missed our news panel last Friday talking about employment and dis- national disability. Oh, Employment's it was too bad you couldn't be there. It really was. But it's a little bit later in this hour. I'm going to talk to Jenny Bovard about some of her experiences. So I'll get a chance to hot take a little bit with Jenny. But I missed you yesterday, last Friday when uh, on the news panel. But I will get to talk to you tomorrow on the news panel. So, Michelle, I bid you adieu for about 23 hours and 30 minutes until we meet again. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow, Dave. Thanks. <laughs> that is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, a documentary is taking a peek inside the mind of a cat. Amy Manti will review it and decide whether it's a meow or a hiss. Oh, no need to bring up the music just yet. I know my joke was that good, Eliza. But uh, before we get to that, we do have to share the Canadian Press Morning Business Minute with Karen Rebo. Stock indexes in Canada and the U.S. gave back a little in trading yesterday as markets adopted a holding pattern ahead of today's U.S. inflation data. Toronto's TSX index slipped 10 points yesterday to close at 18,206. New York's Dow Jones average lost 28 points and the Nasdaq gave back 9. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 159 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 72.38 cents U.S. Vancouver-based clothing retailer Aritzia's second quarter profit jumped 16% to just over $46 million. The world's biggest contract manufacturer of processor chips for smartphones and other products is reporting an 80% rise in quarterly profit amid surging demand. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company says it earned $8.8 billion as sales rose by 48% to $19.2 billion. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We get a special Thursday appearance of Amy Amanti for a film review this week. We had a special Michelle McQuig Thursday appearance as well. A special Thursday through and through. Let's welcome in Amy, who's got a review of the Netflix documentary Inside the Mind of a Cat. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. I love a special Thursday. Uh, Amy, tell me how we're getting inside of the mind of a cat with this documentary. Well, Dave, it's a little bit lighthearted this week, um, which is a nice break, right? That's fine. That's um, good. We like lighthearted. I like lighthearted, especially when we have Halloween coming up, so it might not be so lighthearted. Um, Inside the Mind of a Cat, this is a really quick 67-minute documentary. I'm not sure if there's ever been such a short documentary, but it's nice and digestible. And uh, as the the title sounds this is a family friendly documentary um and it shows uh, us a look of the inside of the mind of a cat literally um so you know we're talking about cat behaviors and mannerisms and um you know the biology of cats and uh, bringing us insights on how our furry friends behave. <laughs> so, okay, so how do they do that? How are the professionals who study cats connecting, say, a hiss or a swat or a jump or a purr with the actual thought process inside the cat? Yes, well, I mean, I think we all kind of are familiar with the fact that dogs have been studied for 
years and years and years and years, right, about these kinds of things. So there are uh, specialists called cat psychologists. Tell me how I get that job, Dave. I would really like to have that job. <laughs> um, but they, they literally are conducting tests. And we're not talking about like, you know, um, scientific tests in terms of like laboratory stuff. So for example, one of the tests that they do is they have two humans sitting inside of, uh, of, a, of a hula hoop. Right. So there's like a little boundary and they're kind of separated from each other. And um, one of them is the owner of a cat that the cat's familiar with. And one of them is a stranger. And so, you know, they run a test where they put the cat in a certain spot and they call the cat. You know, they do it like, like say they do it 50 times and they see how many times the cat goes to the stranger versus, you know, the, the, the person that feeds them. And then they learn. <laughs> right. Then they learn from a study. It's like, OK, cats, you know, have a bond with their owners, that kind of thing. So they take this kind of testing model and they apply it to all sorts of things. Um, so, I mean, this is what I'm saying. I want to be a cat psychologist. I Okay. I have a little career path change. I, I don't see why you can't do that, Amy. It feels like the stakes <laughs> might be a little bit lower than being a cat psychologist than a human psychologist. And, you know, cats talk a little bit less. Well, some cats do. Some are very meowy. That's true. So, so what did you learn watching the documentary? I feel like this is a real educational kind of documentary, even if a little bit lighthearted. Yeah, again, super lighthearted, kind of uh, kind of cheesy in a way, but in a, like in a fun way. So they want you to learn stuff, obviously, but they're they're putting it in this really sort of digestible package, which is quite nice. So some of the things that I I learned was, uh, or some of the things that they addressed, I suppose I should say, is like the physiology of a cat, knowing that cats have more vertebrae than just about any other mammal, which is why. Um, they can be so flexible and nimble, you know, the, the convention that cats always land on their feet. Um, so they, they do some of these slow motion acrobatic things within the documentary and they kind of show you the spinal column of a cat that kind of looks like an x-ray and how the cats move and, you know, talking about the, the blinks of a cat and the tail wags of a cat and what those things mean and how, I mean, it was just so interesting to me. Um, uh, one of the guests, uh, is a couple of sisters from, uh, from Europe who train cats like you would train dogs to do like parlor tricks. Um, like I, who, <laughs> I couldn't train my cat to do anything when I had a cat. Like they were so independent. <laughs> and so like, um, I'm going to do my own thing. So um, I, it was it's like mind boggling to me that this is even possible. So yeah, there's a lot of fun little factoids in here. Much like humans, cats have a variety of personalities, right? Some are very <laughs> sure. friendly, some are very mean, some are very solitary, some are very social, some are very playful, mm -hmm. some aren't. Cats have a real variety there. I'd say the I'd say the variety across the cat world is definitely different than the variety across the dog world. And I know we'll get to dogs versus cats in a minute or two here. Here. But Amy, I, I kind of want you to place this documentary for me in the scale mm -hmm. of importance, because over the years in these kinds of chairs as an interviewer on a show, I've interviewed docu documentarians of all stripes doing stories about genocide and discrimination. And then I've mm -hmm. also done stories about animals and people studying animals and some of them were really really interesting a few for example were one was tales from the catwalk about the cat 
pageant industry. And it was just a fascinating documentary, and the director was awesome. A couple years later, the same director did a story called A Pug's Life, which was all about the fascination in the in the culture of pugs. And again, mm-hmm. these are cute stories, but as you scratched a little bit deeper, there was something there that made it actually important storytelling. So as yeah. that's a long preamble to sort of ask you, where do you feel a documentary like this fits into the scale of importance or the spectrum of documentary? I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways in which content like this fits into that that box, so to speak. I mean, one of the ways is just to be able to have content that you can watch amongst all family generations, right? Um, You're not always going to watch certain documentaries with certain people in your family for obvious reasons, I would say. Um, So this is one of those things that you can sit down with your kids or your grandparents and actually like build really interesting conversation around, especially if you are a cat owner or even a pet owner to try and sort of compare and contrast, you know, what you learned about your cat compared to your dog, for example. Um, I also think it's just, it's important to understand that this kind of work is going on. If I were to just say to the average person on the street, hey, do you know what a cat psychologist does? I think I'd probably get some like crooked looks, right? Like it's not something that we really know is a profession out in the world. Turns out there are some really like sophisticated, highly educated people that have invested their lives into cat psychology. Um, which I find absolutely fascinating. And then, of course, just the the learning of another species. This is kind of like, you know, when people ask questions like, you know, why the genome? You know, why do we why do we do things like that? So maybe a little less scientific. But um, but this is an area of science that gets very little. I would say support in any kind of scientific industry. Like nobody's winning a Pulitzer, <laughs> as you were talking about Nobels and yeah, Pulitzers. Nobels, you know? Yeah. Right. Like nobody's winning a, a big scientific award for cat psychology. Um, so I think that the, this kind of these kind of social sciences within animals is really an unrepresented or an underrepresented um, career path. Documentaries are a place to learn, regardless of what they're talking about. This is the beauty of the world that we live in now. You're no longer restricted to being if you you must like the boxes that are checked by cable TV. No, if you have diverse interests and you want to learn about inside the mind of a cat, there's going to be something there for you, right? That there's people who are going to li- watch this and like this and get an opportunity to learn from this. And no one's going to force you to watch it. You can do it on your own time. Mm-hmm. Amy, how was the description? Yeah, the description was, um, you know, as in any documentary, you know, we need to know who's speaking and when. So that was an important piece. I would say that when they tried to describe some of the movements, the acrobatic movements, of a cat, listen, if you've never been able to see how a cat moves, that's a really unique thing um, to see. So, you know, so for example, as I was talking earlier about cats falling in slow motion um, from high distances and not like, you know, falling to hurt themselves, but, you know, as they jump or as they leap or as they stumble from, you know, someplace in your house from a, a higher, you know, high on the bookshelf to down on the floor. And, and you're watching how the, the, how the spinal column moves and how the cat twists and it's very matrix-like, to be honest. So trying to describe some of that is a little bit complicated. So uh, for folks who have never been able to see how a cat moves, um, that could be kind of difficult because, you know, I had a cat I was able to see and even I was thinking, oh my gosh, what do you mean by that? So, you know, um, there are some moments if you give the, if you give the documentary some space, um, you'll learn a lot, it'll be fun. And then you'll, you'll kind of say to yourself, 
yeah, okay, just tell me the cat's moving acrobatically. <laughs> yeah. And, I'll, and I'll, I'll imagine what that could be, right? Yeah, so. the, the cat leaps or the cat falls or the cat That's spins right. or the cat twists. The cat twists. Like, there's only really so much you can do there to a certain degree yeah. because you're trying it's to like, describe the undescribable. And it's like trying to watch, like, I think when I reviewed The Incredibles, the cartoon where they stretch their body. It's a cartoon, right? So they stretch their bodies in these unique ways. And you're like, the mind doesn't know what that is because it does, it's not what my body can do. Yeah, it's inconceivable unless you can right. conceive it. Uh, mm-hmm. Amy, cat person or dog person? I think you gave it away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I have uh, owned more cats in my life than I've owned dogs. Um, I'm allergic to both, so I have neither <laughs> okay. at the moment. Oh um <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think probably a cat person. I'm probably a cat person. How about you, Dave? My nature is a little bit more of a dog person. I, I mm-hmm. like I like an animal that's a little bit more outgoing and a little bit more playful. And that isn't to say that there aren't cats who are, who certainly are playful. Uh, I've mm-hmm. I've interacted with plenty of cats that I loved because of their playfulness. I think as a pet, though, I like the unconditional love that you typically get from a dog. Um, When I dog sit for people, it's amazing. Even in a couple of days, the bond you'll make Mm -hmm. with this animal uh, because they truly understand what what love is and they understand what keeping you company is and they can tell when you're having a bad day it's remarkable the empathy that dogs can sort of figure out even if you're just dog sitting for a few days it's remarkable when one can when when one can sort of figure out oh it knew i needed this cuddle in this moment it came to me and snuggled me because it felt i needed this so i'm a little bit more of a playful person and i like the outgoing nature of dogs I did, my roommates in college had a cat who despised me, but I liked that cat. I thought, I thought Miss Marbles had a lot of personality. So I'm, I'm not a cat disliker. I'm just Mm -hmm. more of a dog person. I would say I would love the personality of a dog in the body of a cat. Okay. Okay. I mean, I often, I I think I, the, the look of the cat, the look of a cat appeals to me more than the look of a dog. Okay. I don't know why that is but i often used to joke with folks that that if there was a seeing eye panther that it would be like <laughs> it would be at my side okay. but then it would probably eat me in my sleep yeah there, there could be some there could be some access issues i would understand no. why they wouldn't want your your seeing eye panther on a plane if i'm just and, like and thinking just, out loud here and just the you know the the stubbornness nature of some cats listen and all the and all the cats there's been like two or three cats that i've had uh, you know, as a, as a family pet. And then I was living with somebody at, a, at the time who had two cats and cats either um, hate me, you know, will stay away from me or they want to sleep on my face. Yeah. And yeah. that, and that th- those extremes don't work for me. Right. Like, you know, I, if a cat wants to come and like acknowledge me when it wants to, and then go do its own thing, I'm happy with that. But don't hiss at me if I want to pet you and don't, you know, sleep on my face. Yeah. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I lean a little closer to the sleep on my face. I uh, When I was living in Toronto in the summer of 2011, I lived with a woman who had two cats. And her one orange cat, Pumpkin, great name for mm-hmm. orange cat, used to do just that. When I would get home from work, because P- Patty, the woman I lived with, would work late. She'd work till like 9, 10, 11 p.m. at night. And I would get home from work at like 5, 30, 6. And Pumpkin, as I was eating dinner on the sofa, would just hop on my lap and come in for a purr and a snuggle and a scratch. And I just thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world. It was it was very dog-like, as we say, in the personality. Yeah. The thing about it, being a cat owner is, like, there's a little bit less maintenance than being a dog owner, even though there is that still is there is still cleanup involved. There is still cleanup involved, whether it be mm-hmm. fur balls or whether it be the litter box. But there's it's just a little bit easier to be a cat owner than being a dog yeah. owner. You don't have to worry about the four to five going out a day for the walk, although the walk to me is actually 
actually an appeal of being a dog owner. I like the getting out of the house. I like the forcefulness by which I must actually go make something of my day at least a couple of times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe it sounds like, you know, because the thing about owning any pet, cat or dog, or I suppose fish, any pet, is that it leaves you very little room to do things like traveling, right? Because you yeah. can't leave the dog for, for a month if you go to Europe or the cat. You know, there there are cat and dog hotels and there are friends you can leave them with. But then, you know, that guilt sets in. Like about me, for example. Them. I will dog sit right? anybody's dog. Well, that's the thing. It sounds to me like you need to get on that Rover app, Dave, um, which is kind of like Airbnb for dogs. And yeah. Like babysit people's dogs at your leisure and get cash cuz i don't charge my friends i don't I don't, I don't charge my friends to yeah. do it for them i'm just happy to do it for them but uh yeah. randos yeah give me some cash i'll take care of your dog mhm uh amy this movie would you call it a meow or a hiss <laughs> i'd call it a meow come on how can you i mean if you're an animal lover you know you're going to want any content that is talking about animals if you're not an animal lover Okay, that's just the end of my thought. I just can't. I can't, you know. <laughs> well, they would have tuned out. I, I they, they, they would have tuned out from this segment already, anyway. <laughs> uh, Amy, before we let you go, new edition of your podcast, Access and Art with Amy, drops this week. Uh, yeah. Give me a little bit of a sneak peek. Yeah, this one is Lisa Anita Wagner, uh, The House of Dada, D-A-D-A, that I, I entitled it. Dada is an art movement um, from, like, the turn of the 19th century, you know, 1920s kind of thing. Um, really interesting person. And in fact, Lisa builds universes in her home um, to go with this movement. So I thought that was interesting. She had different rooms in her home that are like dedicated to these characters and she calls them universes. So she's a, a really interesting artist. Very good. And fo- of yeah. course, folks can download that on their favorite podcasting platform. Hey, Amy, have a great day. And uh, we will talk to you on Monday. You got it. I'll be here. That's Amy Amanti with a review of the Netflix documentary, Inside the Mind of a Cat. Coming up next, Jenny Bovard wants to share her working experience as part of our ongoing conversation on National Disability Employment Awareness Month. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. There are certain topics that we will pound into the ground on the show. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it definitely happens. Important issues deserve revisiting from multiple perspectives. And that has very much been the case for National Disability Employment Awareness Month. What's really been delightful is the enthusiasm and multitude of ways that people want to approach the topic. So let's welcome in Jenny Bovard, who has some thoughts on the month from her experience in the working world. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. So Jenny, you want to start this conversation from the place of personal experience. I'm I'm just going to clear out and hand you the microphone. What's the story? Well, usually I like to tell a story with a happy ending, and this is no exception. It's going to get a little ugly here for a second, but... A little over a decade ago, I had a chance to work for Canada's largest telecommunications company, and that's all I'll say about who they were. Uh, and and it was a really exciting thing for me. Uh, it was in the customer service uh, industry, which was an industry I felt like I fit in really well. So I had a bit of experience, was really excited. And our first few weeks on the job was in a training type setting, in a classroom setting. There were like 15 or so of us and the trainers 
they had swapped shifts. So one evening we wound up with a new trainer and not long into the evening, into the shift, this new trainer says, uh, they asked me to essentially remove my hat. I was wearing a hat because this environment was extremely bright. I have extreme light sensitivity. Dave, you can maybe relate and maybe have some. It's mm-hmm. part of our albinism deal. I've had plenty of conversations working in the TV world about how do we light me in an appropriate way that doesn't absolutely punish me. I'm a real pain in the butt when it comes to lighting, but you have to be to be able to function. And that was the case here. So I had my hat on. I was asked to remove it. And I explained really just kind of briefly because I was in amongst all my peers. I had explained, you know, human resources and the other trainer, they they know that I need to wear this hat to function. So if if we want to talk about it more, we can talk about it maybe on the break. And they responded, the trainer responded by questioning that my need to wear this hat was real. It was it was a really snarky response to the effect of really are you being real right now this kind of language. So and this was in front of my peers and it was really really uncomfortable and it felt a lot it it felt very uncomfortable. So we tried to chat about it on the break. I really didn't make much progress with this person. Um, I encouraged them to check in with HR and the other trainer and they could sort of fill them in that all the documentation was there. I had done all my due diligence on my end um, and they were really not very apologetic and pretty unwilling to sort of follow through on the accommodation. Um, Long story short, I ended up wearing the hat, obviously. Um, No one was going to tell me not to wear the hat so I can continued to wear it. But when it came time, it got worse. It snowballed, Dave. When it came time to get out onto what we call the floor in the contact center world, when you begin starting to take calls and assisting customers, um, they did not have my Zoom text or large monitor in place. And I had done everything on the right timeline, provided all the documentation and requested everything I needed to request. But it wasn't available. And so this was another issue where I just didn't get the response that you should get. I It was 20 plus emails to HR. It was phone call after phone call. And it was really difficult because my shift was in the evening and the human resources folks were there during the day. Right, I right. even tried to go in to meet with them face to face. They'd never made time for me. Good thing happened. I I connected with an employment service for people with disabilities. They found me a fantastic role elsewhere. So I up and hauled myself out of there. But it felt so wrong. It felt a lot like discrimination. I did a little bit of homework and I thought, you know, maybe I should pursue this so that other people don't have to deal with this down the line. This is not how a company of this size or any business, frankly, should respond to accommodation requests, whether it's in the moment or whether it's the paperwork, the due diligence, things that we need to do by disclosing. So I ended up filing a human rights complaint and it went well. We came to an early resolution. So this is usually the best outcome. Jenny, I know that experience must have been very trying. It doesn't take much imagination to understand how trying that would be. I'm sure there's people at home listening who are empathetic, who've had similar experiences. As you zoom out a little bit, what do you think the impact is of all the advocacy work that you did in that moment for this company and for the working world more broadly moving forward? 
it was a lot of work and it was kind of a big slap in the face, kick in the butt reality check. I had other work experience, but it, it, it became this thought of, of like, am I going to have to do this all the time? And I, am I going to have to be the one to speak up? And it turns out, you know, that is, has been the case. I've had really great experiences, but what ended up happening with this company was with the early resolution to the human rights complaint, um, that essentially means that the the um, the the they they followed through on what I wanted on my asks, and those asks were that the training staff received training, both the existing staff and incoming staff, they received training on how to appropriately respond to again in those moment or or more documented type requests for accommodation, because that's not how you respond, people. You do not question people's needs when they are um, taking the time to explain it in front of peers, nonetheless. Yeah. That, should mm-hmm. be, that should be the basics. That should be the mm-hmm. basics, not like not the advanced level course on this. Uh, right. Jenny, we've only got about four minutes on the clock here, so let's be a little rapid fire with these next couple questions. Tell me about a job that you had that was an uber positive experience. I loved being a barista. I there was just something about handing someone their preferred beverage or their pastry and sort of making them leave a little bit happier than when they arrived. And when I was a barista, it was in a small kiosk location inside a grocery store and it was Starbucks. So there was a real formula, like a real place for everything. And that made it really easy to move about the space and know where everything was as a person with low vision. And then I had those recipes, those drink recipes down, like memorized, like nobody's business. You want a caramel macchiato? Dave, I got you. You want like a dry, half sweet soy hazelnut latte? I got you, right? It was just, I don't know. That was my favorite. I've shared, what about you? I've shared the story on the air before. I used to work for the University of McGill in the athletics department in the equipment room for where I would hand out towels to gym goers or badminton nets to badminton players, but I would also do the laundry of the sports teams. Let me tell you, doing laundry for a living was an incredible experience because it was so tangible. Put item in machine, take item out of machine, put item into dryer, hang it up after you're done. You could have a very tangible work experience. And people are always happy when you do your laundry for them or do their laundry for them. Like they're grateful. It's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. See, it's the same thing. You leave, you, you're doing something for people. And it's like you said, so tangible and just so satisfying. Jenny, 30 seconds or less on this one. Let's say you could do any job outside your current careers. I'm saying careers because you do a lot of different things. What would you do? Oh, my God. I have a secret answer. I think I finally figured out what I want to do when I grow up, so I'm going to keep that one for a bit. But I would basically be like I would be Anthony Bourdain. I would do what he did. That would that would be it. I, think, I would travel the world and eat food and make TV and entertain people. Okay. I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Although I think that's kind of in your current level of career, though, if I'm being totally honest with you. It's somewhere in the path that you're already on and you would be fantastic at it. I I, I mentioned that I liked doing people's laundry. I think if I could run a laundromat or a dry cleaner, I'd be a very happy person. I also think that if I could run a dip enter, a convenience store, maybe connect mm. that to my laundromat and dry cleaner, then we'd really be getting somewhere. But uh, That sounds like a great business plan. I, I, You know, you get people captive doing their laundry and then you sell them a bunch of chocolate bars. 
they get you get snacky when you're doing laundry. You definitely get snacky when you're doing laundry. <laughs> uh, Amy, uh, Amy, Jenny, let's uh, wrap up on this thought here because we've got a minute and thirty seconds on the clock. It's the time of year when a lot of people are shoving pumpkin pie and apple pies into their mouth, but you wanted to give some love to the humble pecan pie. Why? Oh, I want to leave you guys with something sweet. You know, we love our pumpkin pie here on the East Coast. I never met a pie that I didn't like, but I just want to remind everybody that pecan pie is an option. It's so easy to make and it's so delicious you need like four or five ingredients you've you've got them in your cupboard except the pecans a little bit of an investment these days and i will (laughs) always argue it's so worth it to make your own pie crust but even if you don't pecan pie is so easy i got a recipe i'll share it with you if you want pecan pie underappreciated very much underappreciated a delicious item jenny with a scoop of ice cream or not with your pecan pie Oh, yeah. As long as I have my lactose pills. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they're they're invented for, right? Just for the sake of having ice cream with pie. Yeah, you've got to enjoy yourself, even if you're a little lactose intolerant. But yes, who could say no to a scoop of ice cream? Is this even a debate? Some people don't like ice cream. Some people are just people who don't like things. It's the way it goes. A little whipped cream, maybe, is their alternative. Oh, Jenny, now we're talking. Uh, We are officially out of time, though. we got to go before I start craving too many things. We snuck some food in there anyway. We always do. Jenny, have a great day. You too, Dave. That's Jenny Bovard. You can find her podcast, Low Vision Moments, on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up after the break, it's the Regional News Update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Dave Brown. It's the Thursday, October the 13th, 2022 edition of the show. Coming up in this hour, Microsoft has unveiled a series of Surface devices. Sean Priest will tell you all about them. You're really going to have to pay attention to that segment because everything is called Surface. But there's like numbers and letters and something's a tablet and something's a laptop. It's preposterous. So really got to keep our head on a swivel during that segment to keep it all straight. And with Halloween around the corner, I'm asking you this question. Will your house be inclusive and accessible? Treat Accessibly does provide tools to help you with that. Karen McGee has that story. But before we get to any of that, or Brock Richardson, or Nazreen Abdelmajid, or Ramya Emuthan, Starting in British Columbia, Vancouver's Stanley Park is facing a one-two punch from an infestation of leaf-munching grubs and drought conditions that have left trees in the park dead or dying. City of Vancouver arborist Joe McLeod says the trees that were already stressed by the infestation of western hemlock looper moth larvae have been pushed to the breaking point by the dry, warm weather. Yeah, I mean, I think... When you, when you get multiple layers of stress uh, affecting the trees, you know, including uh, drought stress and then impacts from insects or other pathogens, it definitely adds extra stress and higher likelihood of mortality. Dead trees are noticeable in the park's northern edge and in the Prospect Point area. Over to the prairies, where the Saskatchewan Health Authority has finalized its deal with Extendicare, officially taking control of the company's five long-term care homes in the province. The deal will cost the province $13.1 million for Extendicare properties in Saskatoon, Moose Jaw, and Regina. 
Parkside Estendicare in Regina was the site of the province's deadliest COVID-19 outbreak in 2020 with 39, 39 deaths. Saskatchewan's Ombudsman issued a report last year that said staff and residents did not wear masks and 27% of staff reported working while symptomatic. Over to Ontario, where Ontario's Southbrook Vineyard lost 75% of its output this year after a single-day cold event damaged the crops. Niagara Winery owner Bill Rundlemeyer says losses could have been worse without the help of wind machines that push warm air all over the vines. Could have been much worse. I mean, if we didn't, we had all this damage this year, even though we had the wind machines, but if we didn't have the wind machines, we would be ripping everything out and starting from scratch. Wind machines are one of the options wineries have to present, prevent loss from extreme cold weather events caused by climate change, but Rendemeyer says the technology is very expensive. And then two stories out of Atlantic Canada for you. The Nova Scotia government is providing $6.3 million over four years for two programs aimed at addressing the growing shortage of family doctors. One program will cover the cost of office space for some newly graduated physicians or for doctors who have recently moved to the province. The second project involves establishing a team of physiotherapists, pharmacists, nurses, and occupational therapists to care for patients with chronic diseases in order to free up doctors and nurse practitioners to see more patients. Interesting ideas, but in both cases, trying to lower the cost and use more health-related fields to offset some of the pressures. But I need every province in the country to start telling me how they're going to train more doctors. You can't just move deck chairs around on the Titanic. If the boat is sinking, you need people to either bail out the boat or build a new boat. And then finally in New Brunswick. A pilot project that connects retirees with employers having short-term labor market needs is expanding province-wide. The province says the Retiree Employment Agency developed last year helped fill 50 vacancies for temporary casual and seasonal labor. There are more than 400, numbers are hard. There are more than 342,000 New Brunswick residents who are over 50 years old and 59% of them are not in the labor force. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, let's start in the world of parasport, where Canada is in the midst of the world championships in wheelchair rugby. Yes, it's being held in uh, Denmark, and um, we've played uh, three games thus far. The first one I will highlight for you is one that I put an asterisk beside, and this is a loss to Australia, which the final score was 55-53 for Australia. The reason I put an asterisk uh, beside this one is because this is the game that might, in the long run, prevent them from moving on because they went on uh, to lose to the uh, Paralympic champions, uh, Japan, uh, 52-47, and then yesterday they beat Colombia, 62-46, and then in my mind, in order for them to make it into the uh, quarterfinals, they will need to win at least one of these two games today. They will play Denmark at 12 noon, and then Brazil, who's a tough task, at 4 p.m. Eastern. So both games are in Eastern time, so 12 noon Eastern and 4 p.m. Eastern. Where you can catch the game is the Canadian Paralympic uh, Facebook page, or cbc.ca slash sports is where you can catch both of those games, and uh, we may be familiar with uh, Travis Morrow, who is 
part of uh, Beyond the Field. So he's on the team. And for those of you that listen and watch the Neutral Zone, we've had uh, Zach Modell, who's a, uh, a couple of time Paralympian on the team as well. So veteran uh, litter team that I believe will be able to get themselves on the right side, but they do have uh, some tall tasks ahead of them. Two games, two matches in one day in any elite sport is going to be difficult in a game that's colloquially referred to as rolling murder ball. I can't imagine how those, how those bodies are going to feel after playing two games in four hours today. Yeah. Have you actually ever, like, have you watched um, the, the documentary or seen wheelchair rugby? Cause it is wild. Like there is a reason they call it rolling murder ball. It is, it is like jarring to watch. Yeah, all rugby, uh, all rugby requires a certain mindset and uh, perhaps an oblivion to pain that uh, I do not have. <laughs> yeah, I would be, I would, this, I would be folding like a cheap shirt if I was to play that. <laughs> I, I am a big, big baby when it comes to pain, so I am, I am on board with yeah. watching rugby but playing eh, not so much i i know my limits i know my limits brock let's uh, jump over to the world of nhl hockey the season really felt like it got going last night with a bunch of canadian teams in action not to, not again to say that all the all the sport only revolves around canada but especially in hockey because of the multitude of teams and because of the national identity and blah 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 it really felt like it got going last night we had vancouver losing to edmonton connor mcdavid putting up a hat trick and montreal scoring a goal late to beat toronto of four to three so where do you want to start Edmonton and Vancouver or Toronto and Montreal uh let's start with Edmonton and Vancouver I what an entertaining game it was uh to watch I think Edmonton's MO is going to be uh, we're just going to outscore everybody and we don't really care um because they are very talented and I think last night we proved that Connor McDavid hat trick um I gotta tell you you are absolutely correct on uh, Thatrick Demko for the Vancouver Canucks in goal. He is so inconsistent. It's not funny. Sometimes he makes really great saves, and other times you're like, and that went in because why? Um, I, we, I don't know. So this is going to be a struggle. I think if you uh, look at the other side of the net, uh, Jack Campbell, first two goals were a bit soft-ish. Uh, at least the second one for sure was... A bit of a soft one. Um, again, it's someone that is a good goaltender, but can present his inconsistencies. But I think the difference between uh, Edmonton versus Vancouver is one team can outscore everybody almost at will, and the other one uh, not so much. Uh, so very entertaining game. Uh, looking forward to watching a ton of Edmonton games this year because it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, something that was observ- observable last night and was observable in the playoffs last year. Edmonton is a very opportunistic team. Vancouver had more shots. Vancouver contract- controlled the puck more. But when Edmonton got their opportunities, they put him past Thatcher Demko. Vancouver could not do the same to Jack Campbell, and that was pretty much the story of the game. Brock, Montreal Canadiens fans... I'm speaking for all of them as a 100% collective right now. We'll be happy to lose the next 81 games this year because beating Toronto on opening night will nourish us with enough as we're on our way to another tanking season, but it always feels good to beat the Leafs. Hey, listen, uh, what an entertaining game it was uh, last night. Uh, Cole Caulfield scoring uh, two goals. I really look forward for him to kind of take another step in his uh, maturity, he played a part of the season uh, last year. It was just fun to watch. I do think uh, 
this team will be in a rebuild. Um, but uh, you know, there's Stanley Cup, and I and I will and I will raise you on the uh, Montreal Canadiens fans. Their Stanley Cup would be winning the season series against the uh, yeah. Toronto Maple Leafs, Settle and if that. they could get that, they would. Uh, that would be pretty good. And uh, watching the Leafs last night, I I don't know. I, I don't I I don't know what to tell you. I just like we're gonna. I I gotta be honest, Dave. We're gonna be talking a lot more about uh, uh, Western Canada and other Eastern teams because I, I don't know. I, I just I don't I don't I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I love the, I love the shrug in response. Now Leafs fans are just defeated. Oh, I don't know. It's, it to a certain degree, and we're gonna talk about this because we're gonna preview the other four NHL Canadian teams right now. We'll sort of talk about what the Leaf expectation line is. It's hard to get up for the regular season games when the expectations run deeper than the regular season. But, Brock, let's get into it. Let's talk about the other four Canadian teams who we didn't get to preview yesterday. Beginning with the Winnipeg Jets, I would argue, Brock, this is one of the most interesting teams in Canada because in terms of high-level talent... They are loaded with great players. Mark Scheifele, an amazing point getter, an amazing offensive player. Kyle Connor, there are only four players who've scored more goals than Kyle Connor in the last five years. And their names are Alex Ovechkin and Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Mm. That is elite, elite company. Even players like Nikolai Ellers, a phenomenal young hockey player. He's not really young anymore, but phenomenal hockey player. Connor Hellebuck. As much as I question how good Thatcher Demko is, I think Connor Hellebuck is maybe underrated. Had a really rough year last year, but he's probably one of the top seven or eight goalies in the league when he's on his game. So as I think about the Winnipeg Jets, Brock, I think this has the DNA of a good team, but I don't think it's necessarily manifesting on the ice. It, it does. And it's like you're 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 reading my notes on my computer because uh you 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 said a few things there, and first of all, I think the thing that concerns me about um, about the Winnipeg Jets is the fact that they uh, took away their captaincy on Blake Wheeler. I have to wonder how much of that will play a factor into this team. When you do, and I know I I get it. I'm I'm hearing audience members say, yeah, but it's just a letter on a jersey. It is, but you need someone to still step up and and be that leading voice. I can appreciate what Rick Bonus is doing, um, but uh, I gotta wonder what Blake Wheeler is is feeling on this. And again, are they loaded with talent? Yes, one hundred percent. You just literally uh, listed most of their talent. Defense for me is the one kind of meh, I don't know. It feels like. They have some players on defense, you know, Brandon Dillon, Dillon DeMello, uh, those those guys, uh, Dillon Sandsberg, lots of Dillons on uh, Winnipeg's <laughs> team for sure. But uh, I think it, it feels like to me that Winnipeg is, is kind of, they can put it all together, but will they is the question. And my exact note on Connor Hellebuck is he's the biggest question mark of it all. If he plays the way he can, he can hold this team in. If he doesn't, who knows what it looks yeah. like. So, yeah, they, they are kind of the, the question mark in all of uh, Canadian teams in hockey. It's one of the funniest things when you try to analyze hockey. Ultimately, 
anything can be undone or covered up by a goalie. If your goalie's great, everything else you did seems genius. When your goalie plays poorly, everything else you do seems poor. And that's the case of Connor Hellebuck. He was Vesna worthy. He was the best goalie in the league two or three years ago. And he struggled a little bit. Last year was a weird year. So we'll see where he we'll see where he lands on the bounce back. But as you point out, in terms of their blue line, their defense, not giving him a ton of help there, but We'll we'll uh, we'll we'll see if he can rise to the occasion and and undo some of those uh, shortcomings on the defense core. But this team has the possibility of scoring a lot of goals. I didn't even mention Pierre Luc Dubois, who's probably going to be their number one center, depending on how the lines shake out. Who had a, again a rocky year last year. There was a lot of conversation in the offseason. Oh, maybe Pierre Luc wants out. He's going to be a huge part of what they're trying to accomplish this year as well. Brock, let's go to a team where I'd say for the first time in probably about a decade, there's optimism. Optimism in Ottawa with the Senators. Additions all summer long, a couple marquee additions as well. This team, although in a very difficult division, has their eyes on the playoffs. Yeah, and to me, I think the first opportunity that you're really going to see this team on a, you know, national, national scale is is on Saturday when they take on the Maple Leafs. You know, you're going to see what this team is. I, God bless Buffalo, but, you know, I, I don't know what to say about Buffalo. They've been kind of a weird team every, every year for the last little while, but that is their opening game. I, I do think that, you know, their acquisitions in uh, Claude Giroux, Alex Dabrinkit, Brady Kachuk, very nice uh, add-on to a, a Tim Stutzla, sure. Um, I, I think... Goaltending is kind of the question mark with Anton Forsberg. Who who knows uh, what what might be there? But again, a very talented team. And Dave, when you don't have any expectations, that sort of makes it easier for you to play freer. Yeah. And you know, and that, and that's kind of an example of what I saw from from Montreal last night. This is a team that has. Almost zero no, pressure. Zero, they have. zero, none in they, Montreal. I would, but Brock, I would argue Ottawa. Now the expectations are there. You go, you spend the money on Debrincat, you spend the money on Giroux. You're talking about a team loaded with players who've been who've been coming up through the draft for three or four years, four or five years since the team has been stinky. There is a lot of thought, at least amongst the fan base, that this is a year for Ottawa to start competing. So that might actually put some pressure on this team. Maybe, but. It, Again, a lot of their pieces are pieces that it's like it's not a a win now attitude for Ottawa. It's a we have the pieces, let's put it together. And certainly when you are in a Canadian market, and I don't care which Canadian market it is, there's some that are bigger than others, of course. But you do feel that pressure because fans want to see a competitive team. They want to cheer about things. And sometimes the fans can add a little bit more pressure beyond the media, which I think, to your point, that's sort of what's beginning to happen. But I'm very fascinated to see what happens uh, on Saturday night against the Toronto Maple Leafs. I will check in on the game tonight, but that's not the one I'm really circling on the calendar. So where do you put the expectation line on the Ottawa Senators? I would say that this is a team who's expected to compete for a playoff spot and people will be delighted if they make the playoffs. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I think this team uh, can be competitive. I don't think they're getting one of the top three uh, division uh, spots. I think if they're going to get it, they're going to get it from one of the two wildcard spots. But there is other teams in the Eastern Conference, too, that you kind of go, 
uh, maybe that one over Ottawa, maybe this one. Uh, but yeah, I think if people can play, and I hate, and I sort of dislike using this phrase, but there's no other phrase that I can use. Meaningful hockey at the end of the season. I think that's really the expectation for Ottawa. Can we be competitive? Do the last five, six, seven games matter? If the answer is yes, yes I think Ottawa can look at this and say we can we can put our finger on this and say this was good. If the last five, six, seven games don't matter, I think that's a disappointment if you're an Ottawa Senator fan and, you know, staff of the team. Brock, you accused me of reading your notes. You just read my mind. I would say that the date that matters for the Ottawa Senators is March the 15th. The playoffs are scheduled to start in early April. I would say for the Ottawa Senators on March the 15th, are you still mathematically capable of making the playoffs? And I don't mean a 1% chance. I mean, are you in the mix? Are you one or two wins away from being in a playoff spot or are you one or two wins into a playoff spot? I think that's the date that I would start circling on the calendar and saying, where are we on March the 15th? And that's your expectation line. A team that has very low expectations likely projected to be in the bottom three of the league is the Montreal Canadiens. They got the win last night, which, uh, you know, it's hard to get that tanking for Connor Bedard if you if you keep winning these games. But Montreal is a team right now that is in the midst of a big-time rebuild. Brock, give me your thoughts on the Montreal Canadiens, and then I'll give you mine. I got My thoughts start with, with Montreal when I saw uh, Nick Suzuki um, meet with the media the other day. Uh, before the season and you know he he doesn't speak french uh to the best right now and and he kind of awkwardly said bonjour to the to the media i i worry about him um being as young as he is being the captain in such a mecca of media that media can eat you for lunch and literally spit you out on the floor if if things don't go that right right way. Do I think they'll be a little bit more patient with Nick? Nick? Yes, I do. But I do worry about that. Listen, Cole Caulfield is, is going to be a good player, like I mentioned earlier. The maturity level is the thing I'm looking forward to. Uh, Sean Monaghan, very interesting ad there for sure. But again, this is a team that's not ready for now. They're They're looking towards the future and Jake Allen, not Carey Price, but does have the ability to hold the team in when and if he needs to. And I'm sort of curious as part of your thoughts, what did you think of last night, the crowd, you know, giving Carey Price a a sort of a standing ovation as part of the non-dressed players, if you could throw that in your thoughts. That player, Carey Price, gave a lot to that city over the course of the last 15 years. Heart and soul left on the ice, literally destroyed his human body trying to bring joy to that fan base. He deserves all the love he can get from the Montreal fan base, and that's one of the things Montreal's fans do better than anybody else. They pay respect to the players who deserve it. Brock, as you point out, the Montreal Canadiens are in the midst of this rebuild. Uh, It could get a little bit ugly. You point out the media could turn on Nick Suzuki. Some prominent members of the media already turned on Martin St-Louis during the preseason, their coach, when uh, they hadn't won any games. So, yes, there is a boiler uh, button that gets pressed in Montreal pretty quickly. This team is going to feature three to four defensemen under the age of 24 this year. You're going to be featuring two to three forwards under the age of 24 this year. This is a very, very young team. So the attention in terms of what people are going to be looking for this team is the development of Nick Suzuki, Cole Caulfield, Yuri Slavkovsky, Jordan Harris, Justin Barron, 
Caden uh, uh, Gooley, it's going to be about the young guys. That's going to be the story of the season. And I'll point you to the NHL trade deadline in late February. There's going to be a lot of players who are on expiring contracts. The Evgeny Dadanoffs, the Sean Monahans, the Jonathan Durans. These are players who are likely going to be traded at the deadline. And there'll be even more youth infused into this lineup. This is a rebuild. I don't know if it's a full-blown tank job. There's probably going to be a lot of 4-3, 5-4 games, but it's going to be uh, it's going to be hopefully entertaining hockey, but not a lot of wins this year in Montreal. Brock, we are already running way over time here, but let's get a quick thought here on Toronto, the Maple Leafs, the team much like Edmonton with probably the highest expectations of the Canadian markets. Well, I saw a board that said that uh, Toronto has the best odds to win the Stanley Cup uh, with all the Canadian teams. And I, it feels like to me this is rinse, repeat. Um, I, I saw a narrative uh, the other day uh, on on another television show that said if, if the Toronto Blue Jays don't do something, they're going to end up like the Tor- Toronto Maple Leafs where we all believe in the core, we all know they're talented, and this is where we're going to stay. And... This person is right. I believe that the Toronto Maple Leafs have kind of stand pat. Everybody believes in the talent, but you've got to show it. When you when you're in the last minute of a hockey game, there's no way you should be giving that up. You should have gone to overtime. Like they're not strong on defense as much as people want to make it out to be. They're good and talented up front and they can outscore people, but can the goalie stop the puck? And the answer last night was no, he can't when the time is needed. Did he make some 10-bell saves yesterday? Yes, but in the end, he let too many goals in, and that's the fear I have about the Toronto Maple Leafs. My note says, I don't know what to say about this team because that is the truth. Everyone's pushing them past the regular season and saying they're going to make the playoffs. Well, they got to play in the regular season in order to get there. Do I think they're going to get there? Yes, but at what cost? I don't know. So they're the biggest question mark to me. It's the best division in hockey. Toronto, Tampa, Florida, Ottawa, Detroit, Buffalo, Montreal. Who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting one more team in there who's also quite talented. But it's the best division in hockey. Really, the only team dragging up the rear is Montreal. It's going to be it's going to be a bloodbath all year. But I believe Toronto has the ability to go out and win that. Not maybe not win the division, but certainly make the playoffs. And then the question becomes the same old question: Get through the first round, and then we can start talking about the Stanley Cup. Brock, we got to get out of here, man. Have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You too. Thanks so much. That is Brock Richardson. He's the host of The Neutral Zone. Let's bring in Alex Smythe, who has the national weather update. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's sunny and a high of 17. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's a mix of sunny clouds and a high of 20. In St. John, New Brunswick, It's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 20 as well. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds this morning, but then it turns cloudy and rain is expected. There is a rainfall warning in effect as up to 50 millimeters is expected to fall with 20 being the high. Toronto, Ontario, showers this morning, then cloudy and possible rain later in the day with 14 being the high. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, Showers off and on today with a high of 10. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow flurries and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour with a high of 8. 
Now for some better weather. Let's get to Regina, Saskatchewan. It's sunny with wind gusts up to 80 kilometers an hour. It's a very windy day out there, but you, you the you, you said better, then you're throwing wind gusts of 80 at me. There's at least sunshine, Dave, and that's going to be a trend that continues as we go across I would, the country. I would take flurries over 80 kilometers worth of wind. Uh, I don't know. I, I prefer warmer weather. Like in Lethbridge, Alberta, for instance, it's sunny and 19 is a high. That's a good day right there. And continuing along in Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny as well. And the high is 18. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of showers. And there is a wind warning in effect with wind gusts up to 90 kilometers per hour. So it's even windier up in Whitehorse. There, the high is 12. Over to Kelowna, BC, it's sunny, it's beautiful, the high is 18. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's sunny as well, and the high is 19. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the hour, but coming up next, Microsoft has unveiled a series of Surface devices. Sean Priest has the inside scoop. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Microsoft was the buzz in the tech world yesterday as they unveiled a bunch of new devices from the Surface family. Listen to this. Try to tell me if you can keep this all straight. The Microsoft Surface Pro 9. The Surface Laptop 5. Not to be confused with the Surface Laptop Studio 2. Get out of here, Microsoft. Actually, come here. Come back, Microsoft. Let's bring in Sean Priest. He's going to help unpack this. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap Daily, which you can find on AMI-audio. Hey, good morning, Sean. Good morning, Dave. You're such a rebel. Oh, look at you. Oh, it's amazing. Standing up for the man. Well done, you. Standing up for the easily confused. That's what I'm all about, Sean. So, okay, you're going to help me understand this. Let's begin with the Surface Pro 9. What is that? Okay, Surface Pro 9. I I can't believe we're at 9 already. This was the 10th anniversary of the Surface. Wow. um, Well, Surface Pro, really. So the Surface Pro 9 is the tablet, really, style of the Windows computer. Uh, Very, very portable. As as I said, very tablets, um, tablet uh, form factor. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, from the tablet Um, family. It's the tablet form. I do slightly uh, cringe when they say it's a tablet because it is quite heavy it's quite thick i mean it, it it doesn't really compare to an ipad air or something like that mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. still incredibly portable and the, the thing with this though is the power this is truly you know i apple have been saying for ages oh the ipad you know it's a replacement for your laptop we all know it isn't it absolutely is not i need a keyboard sur- i need an actual keyboard if you're going to replace my computer absolutely right and this but the surface pro 9 the power under the hood it really does you know, stand up. It can replace your desktop or your laptop computer, depending on what you're doing, obviously, but it's incredibly powerful. So uh, a Windows tablet that has the performance behind it, that you can actually use it as a main computer. You don't have to, you know, just use it for watching Netflix. Um, uh, but when it comes to the keyboard as well, the, the keyboard that comes uh, as an optional extra, yes, you do need oh, to buy yes. the keyboard ooh, separately. Ooh, of course. God bless you. I know. Incredible. But um, the keyboard is meant to be very nice. And as I said, with the design of the Surface Pro 9, 
um, running uh, the, the new um, iteration with this one with the nine. I mean, it's so similar to the Surface Pro 8. It's not true, but um, <laughs> it, it's got, it, it will be able to come with the latest 12th generation processor from Intel. Plus, though, you can go for the ARM equivalent. ARM obviously is the processor that you're more likely to find in a tablet, in a uh, smartphone. Um, very good battery life with the ARM version of the Surface Pro 9. Um, and it also gives you some extra features such as 5G support. So okay. you can put okay. SIM in there and, and have internet connectivity on the go. I do and like also, that, Sean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there. Yes. I do like that because that's one of the things that, I, that iPads really dominated the market on for a long time and said, hey, Absolutely. this is something you can use wherever. You don't need to log into the Starbucks Wi-Fi. Yes, yes, of course. Always feel like a bit of a leech when I do that. You know, you've got to buy something. Don't just steal their Wi-Fi. But you, no, you're absolutely right. But the thing is, look, as I said, the iPad, a fantastic tablet. I love it. And with the 5G, you know, take it anywhere and you've always got an internet connection. Amazing. But it just doesn't have the applications, the software that I need to get things done. You know, right. Like audio editing right. or whatever. It just doesn't. I need Windows. And this is the, you know, the, the perfect device for that. I think it's it's a great crossover between the tablet and the laptop. I'm giggling because you're going to find yourself in a Microsoft commercial now saying, I need Windows. I'd I, like need, the, yes. I need Windows. <laughs> hey, I'm quite happy to sell out if you're watching Microsoft. Hey, yes, there, no are, there are children to feed and diseases to cure. So, you know, Bill Gates <laughs> needs that kind of, uh, well, I know he's not currently in charge. And burgers to buy. Yeah, and burgers to buy. Okay, let's go over to the Surface Laptop 5. Again, I get very bothered by the fact that they just overuse the word Surface here because I think it would naturally confuse people. But let's come to the Surface Laptop 5. What's going to set this one apart? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> all the devices. You just lost your Microsoft promotional deal, just like that, Sean. It just disappeared. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Look, the big thing that they kept talking about was the different colors available. Forest, sage. I mean, what color Ooh, is sage? sage? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, who knows? Um, but look, this was very much, and I'm going to use the phrase that we always use, and it's, it's terrible, but I'm going to say it. This was evolution, not revolution ah. when it comes to this stuff. So we just got a spec bump in the processor. As I said, the 12th gen Intel processor is now available in these. Um, there was other you know, tweaks on the speakers and the audios and things like that. But other than that, it's pretty much the same thing with a faster processor. So um, the thing with the Surface Laptop 5 is the, is the design. This is the closest as a Windows user that I'm going to get to the lovely MacBook Air or macbook pro you know it's very sleek it's very um the hinge is amazing on it for the screen it's got a touch screen it's got a glass touch pad um it's very premium and that's the thing with this this is very much the the person who needs windows but is really jealous of the macbook style and design okay this is what the okay. surface laptop 5 brings you it's it's almost like the premium Windows laptop. There is something to the idea of combining a touchscreen with a more conventional computer experience that every now and then, why am I double clicking on something when I can just pound it with my finger? You know, there's something there's something there. I, I get that. I get that. You're so and violent. I, I love you it. know me. I'm yes. a violent man by my nature, Sean. Uh, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. This is, this is a device that's meant to compete with the MacBook Pro folks. This is meant to be a high-end device. Yes, yes, absolutely. This is 
this uh, like the the surface event actually started because this is Microsoft saying to other manufacturers, this is how we envision uh, the um, you know Windows laptops, Windows computers to be. This is how we think you should do it. Um, and they've really took off, actually. They're still going 10 years later. Let's finish with more utilization of the word surface and more utilization oh, of please. numbers and then other words to fill in the middle. The Surface Studio Laptop 2 Plus. Uh, okay, yeah. Sean. <laughs> I don't know where to start with this myself. I'll be honest with you. We had the Surface a Studio released, I think it was in 2016, was the first one. And we're still only on two. The Surface Two, uh, Surface Studio Two, was released in 2018. I, where's the three? I mean, why have we just got a plus on this? Well, I'll tell you why, because it's virtually identical <laughs> to the uh, Surface Studio Two. Now, this is a very niche um, product because it is basically just an all-in-one computer, almost like a large Surface Pro Nine. Uh, but the big thing on this is that it's like a easel. It's like a draft a draftsman desk because you can uh, hinge. The hinge is absolutely amazing, the floating hinge. You can put it to any position, any degree of slant or whatever it's called, and you can work on it and you can use it to draw on. You know, it's very much for CAD architects, artists. It is utterly, um, from the design point of view, I think it's beautiful. Uh, the, the, the actual performance of it in the previous models was a little bit lacking considering the price, um, but this one, uh, doesn't come with the latest processor, only the 11th gen Intel processor, but it comes with a very nice graphics card. I think it comes with the uh, NVIDIA 3060. So the performance on the Studio 2 Plus is actually more what you would think it would be for a device in this um, in this price bracket, I suppose. Do you find any of these laptops or surfaces or tablets or whatever we're going to call them, are any of the price tags particularly eye-popping or appealing? I think everything's, you know, I hate every price tag. It's always too much for me. But <laughs> the um, Surface Pro 9 is coming. I think it starts at 1279 Canadian. Yeah, that's pricey. That's pricey, yeah. It's quite pricey. And I'm sure, you know, that's for the very, very basic specs there. So I'm sure you want to add more storage and whatever. So that is quite pricey. The Surface Laptop 5, I think, starts at 1299. Okay. Yeah, uh, so still in that 1300 range. Yeah, which actually isn't bad for that sort of, uh, it's a very nice laptop. But again, you're paying most of that, I think, for the design of it, the form factor of it, like with the Surface Pro 9. When it comes to the Studio 2 Plus, oh, I think it comes in at 5959, $5,959 Canadian dollars. Yes, as I said, it's a very niche product. I'm never going to own one in my life. I would rather buy a car. And I can't use a car either. Yeah, it's either way, five five thousand <laughs> bucks, man. I have, oof, my goodness gracious. Uh, Sean, yes. thank you for this. Thank you for helping me walk through the maze, the somewhat confusing no Microsoft maze. I was complaining yesterday, like after the show, as we were talking about this, because even like in the Microsoft video game world, okay, you had the Xbox, then oh. you had the Xbox 360. Yeah. Okay, I see where you guys are going here. Then we had the Xbox One. All right, we've gone back now. You had the original, yes. and now there's the Xbox Series X. So it's like, can we get some branding here that makes sense, please? Oh, it, it's across. It's not just Microsoft, though. Every company, I don't understand. Pro, Pro Max, M2, M2 Max, M2 Ultras. It's everything. Nothing makes sense to me anymore, but 
I'm hitting 50, so I think, you know, yeah. I'm just giving up. This is why marketing people don't like us broadcasting people. Because, you know, we just want to talk in plain English like normal humans. And they're like, no, you got a brand. Well, well done, Dave. I got to say, you know, yeah. you are sticking it to the man. Well done, you. Keep Sh- fighting the power. Sean, we, ex- we succeed as normal humans. I'm, I'm an adequate human being. We I are adequate. More. I, always, I always enjoy spending time with my fellow adequate human being, Sean Priest, one of the <laughs> hosts of Double Tap. Hey, Sean, thank you for this, buddy. Thanks a lot, man. Weekdays, noon Eastern, AMI-audio. That's where you get your dose of Double Tap. It's also on AMI-audio that you get your dose of The Pulse. Today, 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, Joita Gupta will speak with Maya Chupkov about her podcast, Proud Stutter, and her journey to become a stuttering advocate. That's The Pulse, Thursdays, 1.30 p.m. Eastern time. And of course, you can also find the show available as podcast and on YouTube. Coming up after the break, I'll ask Ramya and Nazreen a very important question. How do you manage your passwords? This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's bring in Ramya Amuthan and Nazreen Abdel-Majid to ask a simple question, although they're never as simple as they seem. Good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Nazreen. Good morning. Hi. So we had some drama at the office this morning. Some of the software had been logged out of in one of our control rooms, and we didn't know the passwords. We've had so much staff turnover the last couple of months that no one knows how to get into these things. And it got myself and Bruce Baclarian thinking, how do people go about managing their passwords? I try to commit everything to brain and then end up just having to reset a million passwords a million different times. <laughs> Nazreen, how do you manage your passwords? Well, <laughs> every week I have to reset a password no matter what it is. I There's... <laughs> There's at least one thing that I always forget a password for, or um, I change it too many times that I'm like, okay, wait, it has to be, or I add an extra, you know, letter or something like that, that I forget about. Oh yeah. And now, even now, the, they make, yeah. now they make you add characters. It's not just numbers and letters anymore. Now they make you add exclamation marks or question marks or number signs. Exactly. So they make it so complicated that even though I write it on my phone or wherever I write it. Um, I always end up, I forget to refresh it when I reset my password. So I'm like, oh my God, this is an old one. <laughs> HR can basically count on me sending an email once a year being like, Dave, your performance review is over, over, uh, overdue. Uh, can I get the password? Can you reset my password for me? I don't know how to get into the software. Uh, Ramya, what about you? That's a great excuse to not do your performance review, oh, by the yeah, way. But I, anyway, I think of many yeah. excuses not to do my performance review. One hundred percent. So anyway, the the password uh, life is actually really complicated. But I'm really lazy, and so now that I use everything Apple, like I'm my MacBook, my iPhone, AirPods. That's all I have. That's anyway. So the the thing is, you can password manage through Apple's default like uh, keychain, right? The iCloud keychain. So it protects all of my passwords for me, quote, and uh, therefore I have this <laughs> password management <laughs> system that's already built in because they really discourage you from having an MS Word document with all your passwords in it. That would definitely be my go-to, but because Keychain is always reminding me, hey, do you want me to update this password? It looks like you're changing your password. Do you want me to do that for you? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, why not? Yeah. My Microsoft 
Microsoft web browser is always asking me if it wants to, me to remember its passwords, and I say no because I don't trust big tech with sure. their passwords. Like, because even if even if they say, "Oh, we're we won't get hacked," don't worry. Yeah, no one wants to get hacked. Everyone will tell me, "Don't worry." But one day you're going to get hacked, and then you're in my bank yep. accounts, and away we go. So I am I am leery of giving of using those kind of managers mm-hmm. or keychains. But I also understand why someone would be willing to do it, and then therefore not having to send a million reset email and email, reset password emails, and have to yes. deal with that every time they want to log into anything. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about like pure functionality here. Do you use Ramya? Starting with you. The thumbprints to open the phone, a straight pin number, a special finger swipe, facial recognition. Yeah, I use all the biometrics. I It's all facial recognition now because I don't have any of the devices that take thumbprints anymore. But, you know, one of the most memorable conversations we have with our tech people was a while back on Kelly and Company when we talked about getting rid of all passwords, all pins, and just sticking to two-factor authentication and biometrics. And it's such a pain doing two-factor. I know that. But it is the most secure because you can't get hacked if all the device has is your face id right yeah, like yeah. there's no back backup password as a very squinty person due to my albinism i the facial recognition yeah. does not work for me but i've become very comfortable with the thumb when my phone first started making me do that i was like i don't like this and now i'm super used to it and kind of love mm-hmm. it nizreen what about you dave apparently i have different thumbprints because it never worked out for me oh no <laughs> never worked out for me. I used to try it all the time because I thought it was exciting, but it never worked out for me that I had to keep uh, pressing the password manually. But now I use facial uh, recognition, which is so helpful unless you wear a mask. So that's, that's right. an issue. Yeah there's, there's, yeah, there's that side of it, too. There's that side of it, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nazreen, we have to say goodbye to you. We're fresh out of time, but thank you for your contribution today. We always appreciate it. Talk to you tomorrow. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet. As always, you've got to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Company today. My pleasure. We're talking gardening with Susan Kearney, and she's introducing us to the ground cherry. She's always experimenting with different plants and uh, gardening things, so she enjoyed growing this this year. She's going to tell us why. Also, community reporter Kim Kilpatrick is joining us to highlight an upcoming workshop being run by Braille Literacy Canada, who she's a huge fan of, that is simply on advocating for Braille. So she'll tell us more on that. Yeah. We also have our accessible gaming segment, which we've moved to the second Thursday of every month with Debbie Williams, and she's uh, highlighting Uno. Are you a fan of Uno? Uh, no. Oh. Actually, I've never, I don't think I've ever played. So uh, oh, so I, when I say no, it means I haven't played. But you'd think it's almost okay. at almost 40 years old, if I was a fan, I would have played. So I think it's fair sure. to say no, I'm not a fan, but it's not because I don't, that's because I dislike the game. I've just never played the game. Okay. Well, I own uh, Braille Uno cards, and if you think Ooh. the Uno pile is thick already, add Braille to it. It's like double. Oh, my gosh. slips and sides. It's ah. like Uno Jenga. I do like card games, though. I like poker. Oh, I play poker and blackjack yeah. and three-card poker all day long. That'd be fun. I also like to play. I can't name the game uh, on air because it's a cuss word, but let's just call it El Presidente. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, we know. There, there's another game uh, that involves cards and a big pint of beer in the middle of the table called, uh, well, depending on how you play, King's Cup or Ring of Fire. That's a good game, too. But that's not your standard card game. Okay, but that I'm not familiar with. Oh, I will look into it. Oh, some, yes. some Friday night we'll hang out, Ramya. I'll show you how of to play course. Ring of Fire, and, uh, and then you'll never want to hang out with me ever again. Uh, Ramya, <laughs> thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya and within the co-host of Kelly and Company coming your way. 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, Karen McGee will be here. She's going to tell you about Treat Accessibly, an organization that is... 
helping to make Halloween a little more accessible. That's Now with Dave Brown. Well, this is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's welcome in Karen McGee from Morrisburg, Ontario, an AMI content development specialist. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, Dave. Karen, I can't believe we've never played Uno. Hold I've on. Never played Uno played before. Uno. Never played Uno before. It's uh, well, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe with that, for that card night when when I teach Rummy a Ring of Fire, you can come over and you guys can play Uno with me. Yes, please. But we should do Ring of Fire second because no one will understand the <laughs> yes. rules after one round of Ring of Fire. Uh, Karen, we've only got a couple minutes on the clock here. So let's just focus on your first topic, which is all about an organization that we've talked about on the show before, Treat Accessibly. Halloween's around the corner. This is an organization devoted to making Halloween more inclusive and accessible to kids of all abilities. So tell me a little bit about the advice that they're offering up to people to get their houses in order ahead of Halloween. So Halloween's one of my favorite times of the year, and I want as many people coming to my house. So basically, they want people to make their homes as accessible as possible. So some ideas are make sure the path to your trick-or-treating station is well lit, clear your driveway and pathways of any obstacles, park your vehicles on the street or in your garage to allow easy access. I actually park my vehicles on the parking lot beside me. Um, set up your trick-or-treating station at the end of your driveway. Yeah, that's um, such a good idea. When they first in mentioned... Your garage- like when we when we spoke to the the the, the founder a couple of years ago, when he suggested people should just put their candy dispensing stations at the edge of their driveway, I was like, "That's so brilliant! That's so brilliant!" I have incorporated so many of these into my trick or treating. Um, even though we only get like twenty kids now, but it just makes a big difference. Even like kids who are shy, right? They don't have to come all the way up to your house, and they can get to more houses that way too. Um, if your home doesn't have a driveway, why don't you use your vehicle to trunk or treat? And I've seen so many oh. people right now. This is a big thing. Um, communities will bring cars together, and you do a trunk or treat. It's really popular in the states too. I know Cornwall does it up the road as well, and you can go around to everybody's car. And like people are like, I'd like some ideas to decorate my car for like Harry Potter or um, um, Hocus Pocus, really popular right now. Um, and that's what a great day because then it's accessible to everybody. You don't, people don't have to come to your home. You can bring a bunch of cars together. Um, it's a really great way to show your creativity. I love these ideas so much. Keep everything well lit. Don't have things that are super scary for kids. I love to decorate for Halloween, but I've toned it down because I've got little kids next door now. So I don't want to scare them. I want them to come to my house. It'd still be a little scary. Like, uh, just have the skeleton, but maybe not like the skeleton that like jumps out of the leaves at people as they're as they're making their way up the up the walkway. Exactly, that's exactly what I've done. Is I still have like my scary three sister witches with like the really creepy masks, but I keep them off to the side a bit so the kids don't have to walk right by them. So, Karen, I know one of the things about Treat Accessibly is that they really want people who undertake this challenge to spread the word. So to do the action, but also spread the word. So this is something that's actually participatory for people beyond their own decisions. What can they do to keep showing the love to Treat Accessibly? So you can actually have a sign on your house. On the front of your house, you can get them from Remax dealers anywhere across Canada, except for Quebec or none of it. So I guess not anywhere across Canada. Um, you can also print the sign off um, from a treataccessibility.com. They have a sign you can print treat, off. Treat, and they treat, suggest putting... treat, treat accessibly. Treat accessibly. It's not treat, treat accessibly. Thank you. Treataccessibly.com. My my auto typing. Um, the 
these signs, um, you print them off, and they say put them out a week earlier so that people will know and can plan their routes for what homes are accessible for their children. And again, I want as many kids. I give out full-size chocolate bars. So, like, come on by, Whoa. kids. And, like, I Whoa. made up my goodie bags the other day. I made up my goodie bags the other day. There's chips. There's Oreo cookies. There's gummies. I cover all the bases. What kind of gummies? Um, I have Coke bottle gummies. I also have Skittles and um, Starburst. Uh, those, um, those, aren't, those, those aren't the gummies that I eat recreationally. Okay, uh, babe, they're <laughs> kids. That That is the adult trick-or-treating, which happens later. And, you know, really, we actually give out trick-or-treat bags to adults as well in our house, to adults that we know. There, there, Not uh, kidding. There were uh, a couple parents in the neighborhood where I spent a lot of time in my young adulthood who uh, would have two stations set up. One was for the kids, and the other one was giving out uh, scotch to the parents. We may or may not give out the occasional beer. If we oh, if we know yeah. the parents oh. and know they partake, we don't force beer on people. Well, of course not. My wow, my goodness. Karen McGee's house, full chocolate bar and maybe a can of beer for the road. Oh, oh, oh. That's Halloween Come on through by, and guys. through. How many uh, how many know where to find me. how many pumpkins are we carving this year, Karen? Well, we grew one that is bigger than a bat well, it's not bigger than basketball. It's um, probably about a foot and a half to two feet. Not big. I'm no good with size. I it's like put your arms out and it's that big. <laughs> okay. It's like put your arms out, Dave, and it's that big around. Um, I'm no judge of distance. And there's a joke that I could tell in there, but I'm not going to do it yeah, on there. Like... Um, <laughs> um, so we've got that. Um, we usually do two each. Um, we'll see how it goes this year. We'll see how it goes. There you go. Yeah, carving pumpkins is a lot of work. It's messy business. Let's just focus on the candy. Karen, we got to get out of here. Thank you very much. Enjoy some time away next week, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thank you, my friend. That is Karen McGee, a content development specialist for AMI in Morrisburg, Ontario. That's where the full chocolate bars are. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning. We'll have the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita, and Greg David will stop by a little bit later in the show as well. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. I got it right today. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.